1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Dr Fern Riddell on activist, arsonist and suffragette Kitty Marion, in her book, Death in Ten Minutes. Dr. Fern Riddell Dr. Fern Riddell (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Fern Riddell is a historian specialising in sex, suffrage and culture in the Victorian and Edwardian eras She appears regularly on TV and radio and writes for The Guardian, Huffington Post, Telegraph and The Times Higher Education among others and is also a columnist for BBC History magazine Fern is also the author of Death in 10 Minutes Kitty Marion, activist, arsonist, suffragette which we're going to be talking about today Fern, welcome to Little Atoms.
2: Thank you very much.
1: This is the story of Kitty Marion, as it says on the cover. Um, But for context, you start looking at Mary Wollstonecraft, and like how some of her ideas were perhaps a bit radical for the feminists that came later in this era in the early 20th century. So tell us why you wanted to start with her.
2: I don't, It's not so much just her ideas, it's also her life. You know, we have so we struggle so much with women who do not fit a certain category who are just supposed to be well married, virtuous and think good things. And Mary Wollstonecraft wasn't like that at all. She had a number of children out of wedlock. And... I was fascinated as to why this woman who was so influential in her time and so powerful in her time wasn't used by the Victorian period, where I, I focus, as a kind of a stepping stone to start off a, a really powerful feminist revolution, because she wasn't. And I was kind of investigating and going through and I realised that it's it's down to her life, it's down to the fact that she did have lovers and she did have children out of wedlock, that Victorian feminists, or at least the kind of the dominant Victorian feminism at that time, really struggled with. And it's a very personal reaction, I think, to kind of to the world we're in today. I I tend to use my history to, or at least my research, to try and understand better why we have the world we have now, why we have so many problems with sex, why we have so many problems with women. And going back over the last 150 years is really what gives me an answer to that.
1: And Kitty Marion, when did you first come across her?
2: So I was uh, working in the archives at the Museum of London and I was doing research for my PhD and I was researching, well, kind of 19th century women in the music halls and kind of music hall in general because that's what I was fascinated in. My family were trick cyclists in the 1890s to the 1930s. And so I grew up with a lot of stories about that and a lot of photographs and I just kind of found that time really fascinating. And I'd always been told, and I think a lot of people have the kind of the misconception that Music Hall is all kind of knees up Mother Brown and very stereotypically male and not a good place for women. And my family were a troop of predominantly female trick cyclists. So I already had this kind of background knowledge that the world wasn't quite what history had told us it was. And I was really fascinated by that. And I was sitting in the Museum of London Archive and the amazing curator there, who's a wonderful woman called Beverly Cook, said, Fern, I think you're you're gonna really like something. I've got this unpublished autobiography of a of a music hall artist that I think you're really gonna like. But just so you know, she was also a suffragette. And I kind of massively rolled my eyes at that point because I didn't want in that very millennial kind of, oh, I know what my rights are. It doesn't matter to me anymore. I didn't want to fall into the trap of studying suffrage because... That feels like if you're a female historian, the first thing people assume about you is that you're going to be doing gender studies or you're going to be doing suffrage. It's like the, the biggest kind of assumption female historians face. And I find that very frustrating because we have incredible political and military historians who are female and they never seem to get the airtime or the exposure that male historians do. So I, I was very kind of anti-being painted into a box. But Bev gave me this kind of typed manuscript, just pages. And I remember sitting down and opening it up and kind of starting to read. And within five pages, I knew I wasn't going to leave. Because this absolutely incredible voice just leapt off the page and told me things I never Knew I had no comprehension of about women, about sex and about the fight for the vote. And I realised very quickly that if I didn't know, as someone who is studying history, no one knew, like the public don't know. Mm-hmm. And that's the purpose of history for me. And that's the purpose of being a historian is making sure everyone has access to the research we do.
1: And this was her unpublished autobiography, which you use in the book. So how much of that is though
2: there? So there's two type-bound volumes in the Museum of London, and Kitty left copies to the Museum of London, to the Women's Library, and to the New York Public Library, where she, which is where she ended her life, which is in New York in America. And it's kind of about... It's kind of two volumes that are about three to four inches thick of this typed manuscript... And I just used to sit with it and just read and read and read and read all these incredible first-hand accounts of life in the music halls and life as a suffragette bomber and then life as a birth control activist. You know, the stories and, and people and, and a memory that as historians you dream of finding. You dream of finding a voice like this from the past that is so complete and tells you everything about the world they were in not just how they feel but how the people around them feel and I knew in that moment from kind of the first read that I had to spend the next few years of my life finding a way to get her into print because everyone should know
1: and so she's present at all those moments of history that you just all those movements that you just mentioned also of course I guess we could say to begin with she was also you know, something of a minor celebrity mm. why has she been forgotten?
2: Uh, this is a question I kept coming back to and I was really struggling to understand as a young researcher. And in the end, I found two reasons. One, the suffragettes themselves really struggled in the 1920s with the connection to some suffragettes, kind of the main ones to the connection to sex and birth control that was seen as actually an anti-feminist thing, as it had been throughout the 19th century, which is another thing that I uncovered that's in Death in 10 Minutes that I was fascinated by. And so that kind of tainted, I think, her memory. Secondly, she was exposing the stories of the bombers that In the 1930s, the surviving suffragettes did not want exposed. And when she sent her autobiography to them to be conserved, to be protected, it got put away and hidden. And the historians who came after that can only really go on the archive that they're given. And if something has been hidden away, it's not surprising that it hasn't come to light because we're talking about history that is 90 years old. You know, we've only had democracy in England since 1928. That's less than that's 90 years. So it is hardly surprising that we are finding so many new things now. And yet to some people, it it is a total shock that this has been hidden and this has been forgotten. And it's kind of my mission with this book and with a lot of the... Kind of public stuff that I do to change people's minds
1: let 's talk about her early life because there's a couple of incidents that happened to her before she 's involved in the suffrage movement, particularly that are a huge influence on her, you know on how she thinks going forward so she'd actually come from Germany initially
2: yeah, I think this is one of the things I kind of love about Kitty. She was a German child immigrant. she came here when she was fifteen years old, came here completely alone because her uncle had realized that her father. Was being incredibly abusive. We don't believe sexually. I don't believe sexually abusive because Kitty doesn't talk about that at all. But physically abusive, incredibly physically and emotionally abusive. And I think her uncle removed her from that situation at the moment where potentially that violence could have become far worse, and geared far more towards the woman she was becoming. And he basically packs her onto a boat with no warning, and sends her to an aunt who's living who's emigrated far earlier and is living with her husband in um, just outside the East End in London. And Kitty arrives in England kind of at the age of 15, this kind of beautiful red-haired young girl who has no idea of what the country is that she's come to, no ability to speak English and she's kind of she remembers sort of coming into Liverpool Street and hearing English being spoken and thinking, "My god, I am never ever going to get a handle on on this language because it's just noise." But she's still kind of, over the next few years, she teaches herself English through Deadwood Dick journals, which are kind of like Penny Dreadful's American stories of the Wild West, and her nieces and nephews... Um, kind of school books and just picking up snatches in the street. She has a few kind of accidents where she's picked up, say, swear words and language and she sort of gaily greets a neighbour or her aunt with this with this kind of swear word, thinking that it's just an everyday term. So she's sort of learning, she's learning about language and she's learning about England. And by the age of 19, she knows more than anything what she really wants to do is be on the stage. And it causes a lot of problems with her aunt's family, this idea that to be an actress is disrespectable and you know, women who want to do that are, are bad and wrong, but she's determined.
1: Now, all the way through this book there are resonances with things that are going on today and you know, the the concerns of the feminist movement today. And so of course Kitty, she wants to get into the music hall. She's just starting now. So she needs an agent. So she has a meeting with this guy. What happens?
2: So she goes, she's very naive and she's 19 years old and she goes for her first agent and she's really excited and it's in a little agency on York Street just off of Waterloo Road, just down by Waterloo Station. And it goes very well. The meeting's fantastic. You know, it's for the, the office is full of acts and bustle and noise and she comes out kind of thinking, my God, my life is made. And... Uh, there's only catch is that the contract isn't ready quite then and she needs to come back the next day at 5 p.m. and I can remember reading that in the archive and kind of my heart sinking because I'm I was by that point in my mid-20s and had had enough experience with the world to recognize a trap when you see one and uh, my heart sort of sank and I turned the page and Kitty describes going back the next day, discovering that the office is empty and yet her agent is there with the contract and she signs it and he moves around the desk to pass it to her and attacks her and knocks her unconscious. And after that she staggers out and she staggers onto onto Waterloo Bridge and she looks down at the water and she has this moment where she decides am I going to throw myself in or am I going to pick myself up and make the life I want. And I think for many women it's a very recognisable moment, that first time someone takes something from you that they have no right to. And it was incredibly powerful to me, and she kind of faces that for the next 20 years, because it's 20 years until the suffragettes show up. She's in her 40s, and every time she goes for work, if it's with an agent or a manager, this keeps happening, and it's happening to other actresses that she knows she's trying desperately to get the government to listen and change its mind and protect women in the industry, and they won't. And it's incredibly frustrating to her. You know, you said that there's an awful lot of resonances in the book. I didn't write it that way. That's just how it happened. You know, this is our history. It has taken us 100 years, and the reason why I think it's such a powerful story, and so many people seem to connect to it, is because what happens to Kitty, whether it's the awful attacks or her resilience and her attempt to change the world around her, so many people recognise as still the society we have today.
1: Widening this out to the, the musical world and the theatrical world, now, obviously what Kitty was experiencing was what most women would have been experiencing. At the same time, there are all of these amazing women characters in that world that are sort of eking out some sort of... Independence might be too strong a word. No,
2: absolutely, it's the right word. Okay,
1: so can have some sort of independence for themselves.
2: I think one of the things I, I really wanted to showcase because I love the music halls, and I think we've got a really, a really wrong understanding of them in our kind of in our culture. You know, this is a place where women were owning and running and managing music halls, and the leading stars were commanding fees far more than any male star at the time. It's a huge place of female empowerment, and a place where women were very aware of how to economize their sexuality or their sensuality to whatever degree that is whether you're playing the virgin or whether you're playing someone who has sexual knowledge you know in in your songs or in your character and that's that's very interesting to me so i was kind of fascinated and i wanted to put kitty in context that she wasn't the only woman you know she wasn't unusual so there's two of my favorite women that i was studying during my phd which is bell bilton who manages to seduce an earl's son and marry him. And they, have, by all accounts, have an incredibly long and terribly happy marriage for the rest of their life. But she's dragged through the press by the earl when it's discovered that his son has married her because he hasn't achieved his majority yet. And so he isn't allowed to marry without permission. And her father, his father, sorry, his father starts divorce proceedings on his son's behalf. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine that happening today, that your parent would have the right to divorce your spouse on your behalf? And so there's this huge court case that takes over London society. Everyone wants to know. Everyone wants to know what Belle is wearing in court. Everyone wants to know what's been said. You know, there's huge kind of newspapers taking out shop windows to showcase that day's events in the trial. And one of the things that's so amazing about this trial to me is Belle... Admits on the stand proudly without any fear that she's had an illegitimate child, that she wasn't married to the man who was before her husband, that he's now in prison, that all of these personal things about her life and her sensuality, her sexuality, and she does so without fear or question on the stand. And, you know, if you think, if you're hearing this story and you think this is a working-class musical girl who's managed to seduce Niles son as an admitting to all of this what we would have thought would be sexual impropriety, the only outcome of that is that she's going to be divorced and probably locked away somewhere and the opposite happens completely the earl's son appears back having been sent on a boat to australia and has snuck back into the country appears at the trial reads all of these letters between himself and bell that talk about their huge love for one another and the judge who's known as the great unmarrier because he presides over the divorce trials turns to the jury at the end and says just because she's, un- she's had an illegitimate child and just because she's in the musicals does not mean she isn't a virtuous woman and you have to judge this accordingly. And of course it comes back and the entire case is thrown out because these two young people have stood up and kind of declared their love for one another. And it just kind of blew my mind because everything we've been taught, what I have constantly found with my research and with the way I, what I choose to look at in history, where I go, the threads I choose to pull at, is that it completely challenges and changes our traditional understanding of that moment in time. And that, for me, is kind of the most exciting and fascinating thing about being a historian at the moment.
1: listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Dr Fern Riddell and we're talking about her book Death in 10 Minutes, Kitty Marion, Activist, Arsonist and Suffragette. And so Fern, I guess we should talk about how Kitty Marion became (laughs) a suffragette. We've talked about a few of the things that have influenced her, have weighed upon her during her earlier life. How does she encounter the suffragettes, basically, and how does she become one?
2: I love Kitty's story of how she became a suffragette because I I recognise it a lot. It's this idea of I'm not actually interested in this form of feminism. I don't want to be part of it. Oh, I've gone to a meeting. Oh, God, I'm now committed. I have to do this. This is everything to me. It's that kind of moment of feminist epiphany that I think many people recognise in their lives where suddenly something changes for you. And that shifts your whole world view. And she's been working in the musicals for about 20 years by this point, desperately campaigning to try and get protection for women in the industry and not getting anywhere. And a number of acting friends say, we're going to march with the suffragettes uh, in the, this huge Hyde Park. March to Hyde Park was happening. And it's going to be amazing. We're taking the banners of the actresses franchise league. Come with us. And Kitty sort of goes, no, no, I don't want anything to do with those hooligans. The suffragettes, I've read about them. They're terrible people. I don't want anything to do with them. And she's kind of convinced to go. And she walks in this march, hearing the women's marciers, seeing all of these banners, listening to all of these lectures of all these women who want exactly the same thing as she does, which is either protection in their industry the right to be heard, the right to have a voice in government and the right to have a say and control over your own life and she sort of disintegrates at that moment going, oh my god, where have these women been all my life? This is everything I want and I need and she, after that walks into the kind of the headquarters of the WSPU which is the Women's Social and Political Union who are the suffragettes that's the only people that we should be calling suffragettes are the members of the WSPU and sort of says what can I do? I'm here, I will do anything. And she gets kind of put to work as a magazine seller, as a telephone answerer, And then as the suffragettes move into a very violent campaign, she ends up becoming what I kind of term Edwardian England's most dangerous woman.
1: So what sort of things did they do? Let's talk about some of this uh, the outrages, as they were called in those days.
2: This, for me, was something that just blew my mind because growing up, I never heard about the bombs. I don't think anyone does. Yeah, I do so many public talks and now and people come up and the first thing they say is, I had no idea. But Kitty was part of a nationwide bombing and arson campaign that really hit its peak between 1912 to 1914 that involved bombs on commuter trains, in MPs' houses, in public parks, in churches, in theatres, acid attacks, chemical attacks, arson attacks, incendiary devices left across the country from Glasgow to Portsmouth, to Ireland, Dublin and Belfast, all the way through London. They tried to blow up St Paul's, they blew up the tabernacle, they blew up um, Lloyd George's house. You know, this is an exceptional, absolutely exceptionally violent domestic terror campaign that we have never acknowledged before.
1: And I think what's really fascinating is, again, the sort of parallel to the modern times I I guess I naively imagine them going around with like you know round things with like fuses <laughs> coming out of the top, but these are literally pipe bombs mm-hmm. like that terrorists use now yeah. with bits of random metal put inside them to cause more damage. Again, exactly the same as as somebody blowing up something nowadays would use.
2: Yeah, I I really struggled with that. So this this became then of course my obsession in my PhD. And I started compiling huge databases of every bomb attack that happened across the country that I could find through the newspapers, through home office reports, through police reports, and sort of visiting local archives and national archives and just trying to mine data from wherever I could to create maps of the bombs, to try and identify the bombers, all of it. And it, it really became a huge thing because... In the entirety of our historiography, only one other historian has ever looked at that. And that's a man called C.J. Beerman, in detail. And he started to compile the attacks and wrote one single journal article on it. That's all we have to talk about this, about this point in our history, which to me seemed insane. We should know everything we should know about this. So I started doing that myself. And kind of the the things that I struggled the most with often were the descriptions of the bombs because they are this kind of... Large sort of 7-inch by 4-inch by 4-inch deep kind of canisters often packed with either gunpowder or nitroglycerin on a time device that then has been packed around with shrapnel, nails, bits of metal. And when you look at the photographs of a lot of the bomb, the aftermath of the bomb attacks, especially on the trains, you know, it's literally exploded, it's destroyed. And the most incredible photos of one of Kitty's attacks is the inside of a house of the M.P.R. Arthur Crow, which is in, is in the images in the book, that is this hugely ornate hall that has been completely gutted. And it's you can't kind of get away from the impact of the bombs once you see the actual visual evidence. And I, I have had a lot of, in kind of feminist historian circles, and really only there, a huge pushback from bringing this history to light and from exposing it. And that really surprised me. It also, unfortunately, makes me even more dogged and even more determined to kind of bring it out, because I think that's just, that's just the way I am. I just felt we had to talk about it and we have to know about it. And One of the most kind of the moments where it really brought it home to me is, you know, I don't use the word terrorist lightly. I grew up not going to London because the IRA would bomb it at Christmas. That's what you didn't do in the 80s. And I had friends who regularly used that bus route for, on 7-7 for their studies. So I know very well, as many do, what terrorism means and the reaction you feel when you hear the word or when you're thinking about it. But you cannot get away once you look at what was actually happening, what they were actually doing, which is intensely detailed in the book. You can't get away from that's what it was. And also the suffragettes themselves owned it. You know, Christabel Pankhurst would print double-page spreads of all of the photographs and every single report of every bomb and arson attack underneath the headlines of Reign of Terror. Emily Pankhurst states in her own autobiography of this period that the whole purpose of the bombs and the arson campaign was to throw the British public into a state of deep terror and insecurity and fear. We need to understand and we need to recognise that they saw themselves as terrorists. That's what they saw the violence as. And we have to allow them to be what they were. We can't sanitise our history just because it makes us feel more comfortable and happier with idolising women who have committed incredibly violent and dangerous actions for us to have the rights we have today.
1: Once these acts have happened then, how does Kitty start to be treated at the hands of the authorities
2: well she's been arrested and force-fed a number of times before the violence as so many of the suffragettes were and i think what few people have have really understood because we haven't talked about the real violence and the horrors that what it really pushed them to was that this the process of force-feeding and government torture was a huge moment in the radicalization of a lot of these women that pushed them towards the extreme violence of their acts At one point in one single sentencing, Kitty is force-fed 232 times in one single sentence, over four months. And it destroys her singing voice. And, you know, when you're reading kind of her first-hand accounts or any first-hand account of the experience of force-feeding, it is torturous to get through. And you just, you always have to carry in your mind that the whole reason why this was happening was because she wanted me to have the rights I have today. And we wouldn't have them without her.
1: What's also going on at this time is the First World War. And Kitty obviously... Of German extraction, she's betrayed by somebody. Basically, reported. There's rumours start that she's a German spy.
2: It's this is you know you can't you cannot ask for a better story than the life story of this incredible woman because it just goes from kind of one amazing extreme to another. And the joys of being a historian is you get this autobiography with this amazing tale in, and you then spend years going off making sure it's all true because you're quite suspicious because how can it all be true? And yet it is. It is all true it's all there um so kitty because of her german blood it turns out that someone from her past decides to seize on the moment to we don't really know what her motivations were i think she was probably just mad to send a letter to the home office proclaiming that kitty is a suffragette and a german spy now by this point kitty has been in england for over half her life She's lost any trace of her German accent. She no longer speaks German. She has no German friends, no German family. She she has no connection to Germany whatsoever. It is the distant dream of a child immigrant, a memory. Yet, of course, the government sees on this opportunity to try and get rid of their most dangerous woman. And there's two sort of things that happen at once. Kitty's already on the run underneath the Cat and Mouse Act because this is the moment where the First World War is breaking out and the suffragettes are on the run. They don't know still from all of their things. The amnesty hasn't quite taken off, so they don't know what's going to happen. So she's hiding from the police already and she hears reports that they're searching for her under this accusation of being a German spy. And she's sort of trying to figure out if she can get out of the country or what's going to happen whilst the government's investigating her and trying to piece together if they can actually throw her out of the country. And one of my favourite bits of archive was sitting in the National Archives in Kew, reading the government reports of this investigation, which are all in the book, kind of all drawn from and put in, go into the book. But the moment when they realise there's literally no way of being able to accuse her of being a German spy for all kind of because she she has she isn't one and they're kind of gutted and they're like oh is there any way there's all this kind of like little scribbles in the margin of like is there any way we can do anything is there any way we can kind of get rid of her and they realise that they can't and they also fear terribly that because she's so influential and important in the suffrage movement that if they do try and deport her that the suffragettes will kick off and might even start bombing. And by that point, British society cannot take a domestic campaign again. But while they are concluding this, Kitty is being kind of half escorted by the police who have now found her and by the suffragettes who are trying to rescue her to the docks at Liverpool. And they managed to put her on a boat and send her to America to just get her out of the country and keep her safe. And she arrives shortly after that into New York whilst the war is breaking out. And from that moment on, her life is again changed forever.
1: And so she's, she finds herself in New York and eventually will become involved with Margaret Sanger and the organisation that becomes Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. And she remains involved in activism for large parts of her life. Um, I want to pass over that period of a time. It's, it is, like, a major part of her life. But I just want to get to, like, where she ends up. Where does, where does Kitty end up after this?
2: Well, so she becomes a hugely eventual part of Margaret Sanger's birth control movement, working between the US and the UK until, really, her death as a birth control activist and kind of sneaking into churches and instead of leaving bombs, she's leaving birth control pamphlets, which I just love. It's disrupting society wherever she can. But she ends up back in New York in her 70s, in the 40s, and she sits down to write her autobiography because she realises that while her life is unique and yet shared, there needs to be a record of it. She desperately wants people to know who she was and the role she played as well as all these amazing women around her. And so she kind of sets down to kind of write it all out and, and leave it to everyone and then dies as we're in the middle of kind of in going into the Second World War. And I really, I, when I was writing the book, I really struggled with that moment because I had no happy ending. You know, Kitty dies surrounded by friends and family, but she's never married, she's never had children. There's no record apart from her words of her life and who she was. And I desperately wanted to find a way to have a positive ending. And I I couldn't because everything that had happened to her, you know, our society hadn't changed. And I was writing this in kind of August, September of last year, thinking, but nothing's changed. And thinking over my own life and thinking over the experiences of uh, very good friends of mine and being so angry and frustrated that nothing had changed. Our world was not different. And as I was sitting down to write chapter 10, Me Too happened and it was insane. And I had to write to my publisher and go, please, can you can you just give me a couple more weeks so I can watch this happen? Because for the first time it feels like we might finally, a hundred years after Kitty was fighting for the same thing, an actress fighting against sexual harassment, trying to change her world, we might finally be getting somewhere. And I was very lucky they sort of gave me the chance to watch it come out, and, and so the whole of the last chapter is capturing that moment of history as it was happening, which was an incredible thing to be able to do as a historian, to start with Mary Wollstonecraft to tell this amazing life and then of Kitty Marion and then capture a moment of our own social revolution at the very end. I still can't get over that that is what happens that I was there at that moment and that is is how it ended and it finally gave me a not so much a happy ending but a hopeful ending for the book because we should have one. We should I get really angry when all we do is portray women in the past as victims. Because they're not. They're so strong and they're so determined to change the world for the better. And often that gets lost in kind of stories of just solely of abuse or just of death or the end or an ending that isn't quite what you want. So to be able to end the book today with where we are now felt incredibly powerful.
1: Now, I was going to say changing the subject to finish (laughs) off, but of course, it's not really changing the subject. I'm not sure yet when this is actually going to be broadcast, but at the moment that we're recording it over the past (laughs) week or so, um, you've started a bit of a movement on the Twitter.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I think Kitty would be very proud, but I didn't do it on purpose. So last week... Uh, the Boston Globe and Mail decided that it was going to remove the title of doctor from its interviews, from anyone who wasn't a medical doctor. And of course, I have quite an iron in the fire over this because I have a, I am a Dr. Fernreddell. And I work in the press. I work as a public expert. You know, I do TV and radio. The whole point of having a PhD is so that people know when I write, when I talk, when you hear me speaking, I'm doing it with authority. I know what I'm talking about. I am not... Going to lie to you, I am telling you what the years of my career and my research have shown me about our past, and I I really do resent massively the world we're in at the moment, where style guides are removing expertise from the public domain. What is the point of journalists coming to speak to me for my expertise if they are not going to acknowledge that on paper? Because how else do people know who to trust? So I get, I get very wound up and very kind of angry about this. And I saw what was happening uh, online and I just added my voice to many voices of academics talking about how that was wrong and sort of stating that I had my, you know, I am not Ms or Mrs. I am Dr. Van Riddell. That's my title and I've earned my authority and that's what I, how I want to be referred to. And it did quite well and a lot of people kind of, a lot of women kind of reacted to this And then almost instantly with sending that out, a man slid into my mentions to say, I think what you've said is legitimately immodest. And I was like, right. That's ridiculous because... Working on sexual culture, we use sexual markers to remove women's voices from the public domain all the time. I've been told I'm vulgar, immodest. Uh, I need to learn humility simply for stating that in a public setting, if you're talking to me about my expertise, you should state my title to show I have expertise. And I just sort of sent off a hashtag, which I made, which was immodest women, as kind of an afterthought. And over the next 48 hours, I had 10,000, over 10,000 new followers and the hashtag went completely viral in a most insane and incredible way. And here we are six days later and it hasn't stopped. And Twitter is full of absolutely incredible women adding their titles to their handles to take hold of the authority that they have. And I think that's an incredibly powerful and amazing thing you know so many one kind of one of the awful things about it was so many women coming to me and saying I have a PhD I have my title but I never use it or I always downplay it because it felt like I was bragging and a PhD is bloody hard work we work really hard as anyone does to add something original to the world around us to be part to show our case our expertise and to show why we know what we're talking about And yet women, and solely women, consistently felt that they should restrict to when they use it to, say, the simple moment where they might give a talk or a lecture, which is ridiculous because when a woman's married, you don't call her Ms. the rest of the time, unless she asks you to. You refer to her as Mrs. It's because it is simply her title. Doctor is simply my title, and it is how I should be referred to. It's that simple. That's all it is. And I... I just got this, I got it. kind of divided into two things of all of these incredible women, which has now, Immodest Women as a hashtag, has now become an international movement, which is insane, but also incredible. And I'm so proud of, and it just has a life of its own. And I, I, I can't stop watching it and kind of being blown away by it. But also this overwhelming number of men who immediately came to me and said, you're modest this is vulgar you need to you need to have more humility and i I have always been uh, my friends often tell me a uh, sort of a terrible feminist In, i I don't like to see the world as a sex war I like you know I, I I don't like to see it that way and I don't like to set men and women against each other but having experience when you experience it it completely shifts kind of your uh, what you thought and you saw about the world and it's this recognition that actually in our society there is a section of men who feel deeply challenged by female expertise to the point where they have to use language that connects to sexual immorality to try and demean you and i think that's fascinating it's horrifying but it's also fascinating how why and what that means um, I mean, that's
1: sort of what you do, right? I mean, that is your field of expertise. That's been happening. That's what this book is about.
2: I know, I know. And I've had so many people. I've had. It's just been insane. I've had men tell me that um, I have to prove I've got a PhD, and actually, I'm a Russian bot here to take down society and democracy from within. Um, I've had, and I've had kind of total. I've had like parody accounts and fake accounts and trash accounts set up to kind of really do everything they can to make my position in public untenable and to try to scare me and remove me. And, you know, often when we talk about that, we talk about feminist campaigners who are tackling incredibly difficult things like abortion or female representation. I, I mean, I suppose I am talking about female representation, but also I'm, I'm a historian. And yet I face the same backlash. So it's not just that people are finding issues triggering It's actually that a certain section of our society thinks this is an acceptable way to behave and that they have a right to behave in that way. It's been a very interesting experience watching it happen and at times it made me feel intensely vulnerable when you suddenly have kind of an explosion of people who want to know what you think and what you say and are really excited as well as people who are just insane. It's quite... Not off-putting, but it it takes you by surprise. And I had to kind of turn everything off on Sunday, on on, on day five, because I, I just needed to kind of get my breath a bit because it was so overwhelming. But also I think one of the greatest things about social media is that it can lead to change like this. We wouldn't have Time's Up, we wouldn't have Me Too, we wouldn't have Immodest Women without the ability for people, men and women, to connect in a huge way that they've never been able, really realistically been able to do before. So I'm very, I'm very proud of, of that. And at the same time, it, it's definitely been an experience.
1: <laughs> so I've been talking to Dr Fern Riddell. We've been talking about her book Death in Ten Minutes. Kitty Marion, activist, arsonist and suffragette. Fan, thank you so much for coming in and telling us about it.
2: Thank you very much.
1: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by ACAST. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.